Welcome to the Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. A Harvard-trained neuroanatomist, Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor became the first viral TED Talk star and a best-selling author with My Stroke of Insight, the story of her debilitating brain hemorrhage and the extraordinary things it revealed to her about the mind. In 2008, she was chosen as one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World, and she was the premier guest on Oprah Winfrey's Soul Series webcast. Dr. Taylor's new book, Whole Brain Living, expands on her discoveries by defining the four distinct characters that live inside our brains and how we can short-circuit emotional reactivity to find our way to peace. Well, Jill Bolte-Taylor, it's great to welcome you to the Story Talks Back. I really appreciate your taking the time to do this with me. Thank you, David. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, me too. Glad you're here. Um, I want to talk to you first about um, sort of stories in your childhood and your growing up years. Um, You know, you've gone on to become a storyteller in many ways, Uh, Do you remember any particular stories or storytellers that you feel may have influenced you? Hmm, isn't that interesting? Um, Well, I kind of, uh, I think uh, as a video. Um, So my right brain has always been very well developed. And I think in terms of of movie, if you will. (laughs) And when I was a little girl, um, my mom, she hated to go to the movies. Don't ask me why, but she, she was uncomfortable. And so I would go to the movies and she would have me come home and reiterate to her, retell the story. And I've thought about this often because she trained me how to tell a story. Because if I was going to tell her, for example, Jaws was, you know, my, I was like 15 or so when Jaws comes out. And, um, but all of these movies, I would come home and I would, as I'm watching the story unfold, and I'm thinking about it in slightly different way, because I know I'm going to have to share the story. And so I'm, I embody the story. And, and so I kind of insert myself into a storyline and then I can recall it by reenacting, you know, the experience. So I'm really clear that my mother, by asking me to do that on a regular basis was actually, and I, my, knowing my mother, it was purposeful, training me how to tell a story. Interesting. And that connects so clearly to your TED Talk. Yes. When it came to the TED talk, it was, you know, I had never heard of Ted. Ted Ted had not gone viral yet. Um, And um, when they contacted me, 
and said, you know, you're giving a presentation to 1,200 people. And it's like, well, 1,200 people is, is I'm used to that. That wasn't a, a big deal. Um, and then another 300 in Aspen. And it was like 1,500 people. So, you know, I was, I was, it was important to me that the only way people were going to understand the power that this experience had in my life was to give them the morning of the stroke, give them the stroke, let them have that feeling of the experience of watching your mind completely deteriorate. And so that's how, you know, a good story, you got to feel it. I mean, we are feeling creatures who think, not thinking creatures who feel. So presenting an intellectual PowerPoint wasn't going to have the impact that I wanted to have. And I think as a speaker, you have to decide what kind of an impact do you want to have? And I wanted people, I wanted that audience to to embody that experience so deeply that they valued, they understood the value of the right hemisphere where we are a collective whole, not just individuals with the value structure of me and mine, but I needed them to experience the collective whole. And if they, if I could touch the people who are at the top of these empires, because that's how I thought of Tedsters, is they all have their own little empire. And if I could change the top, then they, that, that would infiltrate into all their world. And I thought that that was worth my time to put in to really creating a, a, a TED talk that, uh, that would move them. And your style in, in delivering the talk is so demonstrative. I mean, you're very <clears throat> dramatic, very physical. Um, you're very, very uh, powerful. It almost reminded me, you know, it also has a lot of spirituality in it. It almost reminded me of a tent revival, you know, like um, <laughs> you're, you know, you're like almost trying to really whip the audience <laughs> up in a way into into your your perception. Yeah. You know, that's funny because my dad um, uh, spent his life as, uh, he was a PhD in psychology, but he was also an Episcopalian minister. Uh, and so he, he would say to me, uh, you know, I'm like a Southern Baptist preacher when I get at the podium. And it was like, you know, I, I feel it, you know? So it's like, if I feel it. And, but I have to say that the reason why uh, there was so much that, that Ted talk was choreographed and in my body. And it was choreographed in my body because um, I had looked at the list of people who might be in the audience. And I thought to myself, you know, what am I going to do? And I don't script. So I was very uncomfortable. Usually I'm happy. I'm an ad liber. I, I will quit on the second that you want me to quit, but I don't script. And here I was scripting and it's like, I'm not practiced at scripting. And then how do you deliver a script and feel authentic at the same time? I'm not an actress. I have no training like this. And it was like, but, but I learned there's so much to say. And I had to script it in order to be able to 
compacted into 18 minutes? How do you cover all the really important pieces? How do you keep throwing out? What's, 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 what's the point, the point, the point, the point? How do you drive that story so that you're always one step ahead of their mind asking the next question, answering it before they can ask it again? And, and that way then they're not off in their minds, they're with you. So, so for me, I had to script it. I was not comfortable doing that. I thought, you know, I'm going to look out, I'm going to see Al Gore, my brain's going to go, oh my gosh, it's Al Gore, and I'm going to lose my place. And, and that's the end, you know, that's, that's just the end of, of the presentation, because I would, I would fumble from there. So I thought, okay, I will embody and I will create this dance. And so as I that way, then no matter who's out there or what I visually am experiencing, I'm so on automatic between where I am in the dance and where I am in the story. And I married those together and and I had to do it. That was the only way I could do it and feel secure that I wasn't going to blow it. And it became, it also seemed to me that, you know, at that point, you became much more of a person of, of a mainstream storyteller. Like you were trying to convey, you know, you're, you're, much, you're a scientist, you've written, you know, very detailed scientific papers, but it seemed like this story of your stroke really brought you into the idea of reaching a broader audience oh, yes. and becoming more mainstream. Did that, does that sound right? Well, I think that that is right. And that is what happened, but that was never my intention because again, I didn't know Ted. And at that point, Ted had like five, maybe six. I don't remember. I think it was five, um, uh, you, um, talks up on their website. I mean, they right. were just coming into the YouTube world uh, and the, the main media world like that. And so, but they told us that um, half of us, this was the saving grace, half of us might make it to the internet because they were just doing this. And I thought, okay, well, you know, if it's good, they'll put it on the internet, who cares? And if it's bad, they won't put it on the internet. Who cares? So it was really safe. You know, I was, I was really, really safe. And, um, uh, you know, I felt that if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. And, and I knew it would do really well or it would be horrible. I had no idea. And when I was creating the story, um, it's divided into three parts. Part one is the setup, you know, who's Joe Multi-Taylor in the real world pre-stroke. Um, part two is the morning of the stroke, enacting the stroke. That was easy. First part was really easy. Second part was comfortable. It was, it was dramatic. It was, and it was, they responded beautifully to it. Um, and then the third part was completely different than what I ended up using. I was going to move into teaching mode. What did I learn? You know, here's my opportunity to share with the world. What did I learn as a brain scientist having had this stroke? And um, so I would go to IU, uh, Indiana University, where I was teaching and my friends were teaching and I was giving this TED talk to practice uh, to these audiences and watching 
where's my dramatic moments? Where are they going to go withdraw and go quiet? Where are they going to, to laugh spontaneously that I may not be expecting? Um, so I, I did my best to set myself up for success. But I delivered uh, it to my like this was like three days before, <clears throat> excuse me, before I was going to go to Monterey, and I gave it to one of my best friends, and she's sitting on the couch, and she's 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 in it, you know, she's just in it, she's just in it, she's weeping because she knows the story, blah blah blah, and then I get to this third part, and I start. I shift completely into my left brain and I start teaching and she's going, no, no, stop, stop. No, you can't do this. And I'm going, what do you mean? And she's going, you can't do that to us. And I'm going, what? I can't do what? And she says, you have taken us into this deep place inside of ourselves. And we are with you and you can't just drop us there mm-hmm. and teach us we're not mm-hmm. we're, we are not teachable <laughs> and i thought I, I i said no i just started you know squealing no and she says yes and i knew what she was saying was i had to hold that space i had to hold the space where I had taken my audience. I had to be that vulnerable. And I started weeping and I said, oh my gosh, I have to hold the space. And she said, yes, you have to hold the space. And it was like, wow. I mean, it was just Wow, that was a huge wow. How do I do that? How, how in this world that is so cruel and filled with criticism, how, how do I do that? How do I open all of me and hold that space? Mm-hmm. And, um, but it was the right thing to do. And so I did. I wrote that last section and I became a great whale gliding through a sea of silent euphoria and I took them there Mm -hmm. and we were there together. And that's where we ended together. Mm -hmm. And it was so beautiful. And they took that, I could just feel them lift with me and be that. It, It was such a beautiful and profound moment with an audience and and then and then my whole life changed that my was a huge life change that's a big lesson in storytelling right and not abandoning your audience yeah staying with your your story yeah yeah take them hold them hold them i mean they care enough to be with you they care enough to give you their time and their attention they are there for you and, um, and, and, you know, the mindset that an audience is there because they choose to be there, they want to be there, they want to receive whatever gift you have to give them, and they're there for you. They are really there to be moved and to be supported. And if you trust your audience, 
they they will it, you become a an, an entity i describe it like an organism and when they laugh they laugh like an animal when they weep they weep like an animal it's like you are in relationship with a entity and it's this beautiful dance of of appreciation and grace and um that's why they're there they're there to to touch the best of what you have to offer and so you know we move into all this fear and all this anxiety and all uh, they're criticizing me and oh my gosh and it's like let it go and trust yourself and trust the audience to be with you and however it turns out it turns out but at least you showed up so like it's like a demonstration of the right brain perception in a way yeah yeah and and if 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 you're willing to go there you if you're not willing to go there they can't go there they can't go there without you so you either bring them along with you and include them or or you know did did you disrespect your each individual who attended in order to blend with you i mean isn't that what a good performance is about it's about that blending and becoming it's kind of like me becoming a part of that movie so i could retell the story to my mom right right and then you had to take that same story and go off into isolation basically to put it on paper in a more much more intellectual process right are you talking about the second book what are you talking about the when you wrote my stroke of insight oh i wrote i had all my stroke of insight was already self-published oh okay, okay. before that so <laughs> i had um i had spent uh eight years in recovery and then and during that process i wrote uh different parts I, within the second year i wrote the morning of the stroke and the morning of the stroke is written in very small sentences which was my childlike mind which i had had regotten rebuilt mm -hmm. and um but i wanted people to to me that was the gift that's all i wanted to write i had no intention on writing a book i thought people needed to understand this breakdown of my mind because if they understood the breakdown, then if they ever experienced any of that, they would call 911 sooner rather than later. That was all I had to offer. Mm. And then uh, people started hearing about my story and I would get these phone calls. And But people didn't care so much about the morning of the stroke. They cared about what did I do to recover? And it was like, okay, so I should write a section on recovery. So I, I had kept a long list on my, my door. I had gotten some newspaper uh, paper roll and stuck that on my office door. And I just would date. And when I noticed something like I could, I could do addition today. I put the date down. Um, I could, um, uh, whatever. Uh, I felt, I felt my, my arm was, was fluid again, whatever. Uh, I put it down. So I just made this long list of things. And then I thought, well, there's, you know, the recovery. So all I had to do was write that up, but I didn't have enough of a sophisticated mind because I had become an infant again with the stroke. I didn't know how to present that material in the story. 
So I, I did it twice in the book. So people complain there's repetition. Well, there is. I didn't know how else to do it. So I did it linearly. And then I did it. Um, I did more of a how um, individual things that, that mattered. Mm. Um, and because I didn't know what would be most meaningful. But so I did it. Uh, and then I thought, well, I have to have an intro. So I actually had a big section. It was like three chapters, four chapters about Jill, little Jill. How did I grow up to be a brain scientist? All that. And, um, and, and I never liked that section. I never felt like it belonged in this story. It wasn't the story that I was telling. And then uh, what did I learn? And I thought, you know, I, I, want, I need to share what I've learned and what I've gained because I've earned that right. And so that's the last three, four chapters. Um, so I had this book together and I gave 15 copies to 15 of my nearest and dearest people. And they all gave me feedback and some gave me hardly anything. And some people ripped it up. And, uh, uh, and my mother, always my mother, she was, she was one of those intellectual minds. Um, and she, she, uh, she gave feedback, but everybody gave me feedback. But one friend of mine said, uh, uh, Jill, it's not going to work. Why do my friends tell me Jill is not going to work? <laughs> my very honest friends. I have to say, I love that about them. Um, and he said, Jill, it's not going to work. And I said, okay, you know, and at this point I want it to work because I am tired of it. And, um, and he said, um, uh, I want, I want to know more about you I want to know about more about the heroine and I gave him a big squeeze and a big hug and a big kiss on the cheek and I said thank you I chopped that whole section out I put it to the side I put the book together and I said it's done because it was he said exactly the opposite of what I wanted I wanted it to be about the stroke the morning of the stroke through the eyes of a scientist. And what did I need to recover? And what did I learn? And that was the story. You know, when, when I write a story, when I write anything, what's the point? 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 I don't, I don't use a lot of filler. Uh, if that sentence can be shot, boom, throw it out. It's gone. Um, you know, I'm just less is more, less is more. Um, and, and that's that to me, that's how I want to tell a story. Boom, 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 boom. And there it was. So, so now when I read and I read, I listen to at least two audio books a week. Um, and, um, uh, you know, and, and I'm thinking, yeah, this is filler. This is filler. This is, well, that's lovely filler. Okay. Well, this is how this author is telling this story. Their filler is about characters or their filler is about this, that, or the other. And with mysteries, I've learned that, you know, 80%, 85% of the front is filler. And then new characters or new twists get added in at the end that end up being, you know, so I don't even try to figure it out anymore. I'm just listening to story and listening to how does this person tell a story? And is it a story that I find interesting enough or it, it you know, I, it feels good to me or it feels curious or interesting or or something that's got my my attention or is it like mm, too much filler mm. i'm not big on filler <laughs> <laughs> i'm not big on filler what's your point boom 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 you know uh -huh. uh, yeah but you know we're all different and and uh you know there's there's everybody tells a story well once you have a book contract you have to make your idea into a book of 
a certain length. And so yeah. you may only have about a paragraph of actual material, and then you need to make it into a book. <laughs> Yeah, I went through that with my with my editors on the last one. They wanted uh, uh, they wanted a contract for eighty five thousand words, and I said uh, I had more like forty five thousand in mind. So um, uh, could we like land somewhere around sixty? Well, it turned out being ninety five. So, <laughs> but you know, I'd rather be committed to less and right. then let it grow as opposed to uh, um, you know having having to create that many words for me uh, again I, i'm just less less is more right um yeah and and it depends on of course the kind of information that that we give and and i want people to feel it if if my it's it's just how i am which is funny being a scientist and having to do uh scientific writing oh lord you know and maybe that's why i'm more to the point 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 uh, because I, I think like that, but I apply it to this kind of, of thing. But I mean, if you think about scientific theorems, you know, and the great theorems of science, I mean, those are stories, right? And they, the, the really elegant ones, um, it's almost as if the best stories win somehow, um, mm -hmm. you do you feel that? Do you feel that that kind of storytelling is really important to, to making science speak? So when I was, uh, I love that question. Um, and you sound like my mother as you speak like that about theorems, the mathematician, and the story of the mathematician. Um, uh, whenever I talk to young scientists, um, I, was, I was winning all the awards at Harvard. So there's only one reason why I was winning the awards and it was because I was a storyteller. And huh. I remember when I was uh, my very first time I did a poster at the um, a society for neuroscience where there's like 25,000 scientists in one big, you know, convention hall and thousands and thousands of posters. Um, I would set my posters. First of all, I was, um, when I went, I always told my, my mentors and I chose my mentors that I was very visual. So I cared about aesthetics. So give me projects that are aesthetically appealing. Um, I could never run blobs and, and do things that to me were not beautiful. I'm, I'm sure things are beautiful, but I didn't see it. I want some color. I want some shape. I want some size. I want neurons. Give me neurons. Neurons are, are beautiful. They're beautiful. They're all interesting and they have unique morphology shapes and uh, which match their function and they're beautiful. And there's a story that goes with the shape of a neuron. So that worked for me. So um, I would tell, I would create these posters that were very linearly telling a story and I would tell a story. And so I would be there, you know, we, we're kind of geeky, you know, young scientists are, are kind of geeky. We're geeky people and uh, not necessarily great storytellers. And so I would be at my poster telling the story of my beautiful cells and my project and how I did it and what I was doing and, and, and what I learned and how I learned it and what happened because, you know, things happen and then things change and then we learn something new and I had this story. So I would have literally a mob 
around my poster in, in because, you know, after you've seen a hundred posters, you are, you're burned out. You got fluorescent lighting, you're tired. You know, the noise in the room is enormous. And it's like, you got to get my attention. And so here I am, I'm telling my story. And then I'm telling my story again to a new mob and I'm telling my story and people. So I would always have people around my thing. And I thought this is all about storytelling. This is all about storytelling. So in the lab, I would try to work with my colleagues. Tell me your story. Story. And it was like, oh, well, I did this and I did that and I did this and I did that and I did that and I did this and I did that. And that's what I got. It was like, no, you did this and then this happened. And then and then what happened? What happened in your mind? What 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 changed your thinking? And and then this happened. And then how did that fit in? And and you know, if you can't get excited about your work, nobody else is going to get excited about your work. And there's there's just, you know, too much noise out there to be able to focus on what is interesting. So you have to make it interesting. So I always tell kids, it's about the story. You got to tell the story. And um, Harvard, uh, the Department of Psychiatry would have this big event it's called the Mizell Award. And they would have all the PhD and all the MD and MD PhD uh, researchers, young uh, postdocs and, and whomever um, submit posters and, um, and tell their stories. And I ended up winning this, this thing. And I won it only because in my opinion. Well, it was beautiful work, no question about it, but there was a lot of beautiful work done by people. I mean, the level of, of interesting work and in research is amazing, but I had a good story and I could tell that story. And we actually had an accident in the lab where a hot room went cold and or a cold room went hot. I, I don't remember. I've had a stroke since then. I, I don't remember that detail. <laughs> but uh, but something happened. And it was an overnight, you know, you do a whole day of work, and then you put it into this room. And, and then the next day, you do a whole day of work. And then you put it in this room, and it maintained a temperature. So my guess is it was a, a cold room that that ended up going hot. And, um, and so everything changed at the microchemical level. And instead of a stain going into the cell body of these GABA cells, which are the primary inhibitory cells in, in the brain, it ended up going into their terminal endings because of the temperature shift. And so we could, had a whole different visual where we could now see the outline of these big, beautiful pyramidal cells in relationship to the GABA. Now, what a story, you know? So, so and we turned the accident into to an advantage because that's what you do when you've got, you know, thousands of dollars of, of uh, stuff invested in a three-day protocol and something happens. So, so it's all about the story. It's really all about the story. And I tell kids, you know, you've got to learn a master, uh, an expert in a field is not just someone who knows the details, the left brain details and the linearity and the right and, and all of that but has the ability to communicate that, verbalize all those language. If you don't have the language on the tip of your tongue, then you can't tell the story. And people, people want the story because that's how 
it makes sense to them. And then they can package that and remember it and value it. And then at the end of the day, they're going to be sitting around the dinner table of one of these neuroscience meetings going, well, what did you see today that interested you? And they're all just like fried and, you know, just like, like burned out. And it's like, you know, I saw this woman and off you go and they tell a story. So stories are how our human brain remembers and, and creates value and structure for real quality communication. Do you have a sense though, that is there, is there the potential in science for the story to become too important? Like if facts and you know proofs are really what matters, is the story potentially almost seductive? You know, uh, can you be misled by the story? I think absolutely, because the story is going to be the interpretation of the data. Um, I, I have, um, uh, yeah, absolutely 100%. Um, the, the interpretation um, is, is everything. And the interpretation of the data is going to be based on the story that we already know or believe to be true. So I can have um, uh, an experience, an awareness, and I will place my experience on top of that in order to interpret what it means. I think the world's an interesting place and, and, you know, scientists are trying to figure out how do they fit into that network with a voice. And a lot of scientists who should have voices don't know how to work the system in order to gain a voice. Um, and, and the other way around, there are some voices out there that, that uh, personally, I, I, they're not my favorite to listen to because I, I disagree with their interpretation. Uh, but I'm sure that they feel the exact same thing about me, <laughs> you know, and all, and I think all we can do is be true to who we are and have ongoing conversation. Uh, and I'm, I've certainly always been open to the conversation, um, with my colleagues. Um, and, and I've been very fortunate that the world of neuroscience and, uh, neurosurgery, neuro, neuro everything, um, and medical schools, et cetera, have really valued um, uh, my experience, what I gained from my experience, um, and, and valued that voice enough to, you know, invite me in as a keynoter. Mm. I want to talk to you about uh, your new book, Whole Brain Living. And, um, you know, for me, one of the most interesting parts, and, and I guess it's the main thesis of the book is that we have these four characters um, who are all part of our brain and how our brain functions. Um, and, you know, they're, you, you divide the right and the left brain each into two, two characters per, so that winds up to four. And it just makes me think about, you know, you talk about them as characters. And I wonder, you know, does this really make us hardwired for stories in the sense that we already have four characters inside of us. We're not one unified voice, you know, one unified projection. We're always dealing with this balance of characters. Did that occur to you when you were writing the book or thinking this through? 
Yeah, I actually thought about wouldn't it make an interesting novel to um, uh, write a novel where you've got four characters and at the end it turns out that it's all about one person. Right, right. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have the sophistication in storytelling to do that, but somebody could. Uh, and I'm sure that that would be fascinating and then complicate it by throwing in a partner. And now there's eight characters and there's re really only two of us in this relationship. Um, so, uh, yeah, the you know, the, the thing about the brain is um, as soon as biology came up with two emotional systems on top of the brainstem region, which is also bilateral. You look at a, a, um, a thalamus and, and it looks like this. It's got two different bulbous structures that are then going to be relay into the cortex. And that first set of cortex is going to be the emotional tissue. And then beyond that is going to be the new tissue added on top because the, the nervous system keeps adding new tissue on top. And once there's two, then there's going to be more. And so that's going to double that. We're going to then have four, two emotional, uh, two completely different modules of cells processing similar information in different ways, resulting in different level, different kinds of consciousness. Uh, and then you add more tissue on top of that, and then you're going to have even more different kinds of consciousness. Um, all vying for the microphone inside of a single head. And um, eventually, you know, um, the world is chaos. Moment by moment is a million bits of data. And we either function in that chaos and we're comfortable in it, or we have to create order in the chaos in order to feel like we have some control. And some of us need that more than others. So some of us develop that left brain uh, more than, than the right brain uh, or the people who, who stay predominant in the right brain. And so, yeah, we end up, there's, there's this ongoing storyline inside of each one of us. And, and I, one of the things I love about this material is because, and the only reason I wrote the book was because so many people came to me and said, how do I find that blissful euphoria that you found? How do I get out of these, this ongoing language of the left hemisphere and get into that right hemisphere? And I simply did not, I had no answer. I, I had no answer. And for years, I had no answer. It was like, how do I how do I take, how do I download what I have experienced so that they know what it feels like so that they can get there? Uh, and I didn't, I didn't know until I realized the general population believes we have a single amygdala. And if they think we have a single amygdala, then, then they think we have a single emotional system. And that was it for me. As soon as I realized that it was off to the races because now I had a story that people could understand about their own neurodevelopment, about their brain anatomy, what's going on in that tissue, what characteristics resulting in what character, and it really was when I was recovering the left hemisphere, it really was inviting new characters back into my, my 
in internal world. And one of them wanted to be the boss. And it was like, no, <clears throat> no, thank you. I, I value you. I need you. I want you. Uh, I, you, you know, you're an equal member, but no, you, you can't be the boss again. And, um, and, and it was fine with that. And so now we have a very lovely uh, interplay of relationship. And I have so much respect for each part of my brain that when they, they have a need and they express themselves, then I instantly recognize which part of me is this. Is this something I want or in this moment in time, less than, less of? And, and they're, they're all on board. And I feel like, I feel like this is a roadmap to truly understanding how to live a life that, that makes sense inside of our own head. And once I start making sense to me, all of a sudden, I can relate to the external world as a whole person, um, a, a conscious person with with intention and purpose as opposed to simply just running on automatic and flitting in and out of these different parts of me and no one's feeling any satisfaction and so i have anxiety the, and right now boy are we in an anxiety epidemic right but when you say i right you're talking about a space that is separate from those four characters right no it's it's all of them it's all i'm a collective okay so you you i'm a borg (laughs) (laughs) i am my own borg yes so the so the i I, so so the i that you're speaking from is always one of those four or maybe a, a combination of two or three i think it's all of me i think when i so so i know my i very well. I know my left rational thinking ego character. She's fantastic. You know, she got me here on time. You know, I could find my glasses for gosh sake. I could find the, the details that I needed to do in order for us to orchestrate being here today. Without that character, I, this never would have happened. So um, I know that I. I also know my unhappy little self. I know, and she's a part of me too. Um, and, and then my, my character three, my right here, right now, playful experiential, uh, she's my dominant. And, um, as soon as I'm done with you, she's going paddleboarding and, uh, (laughs) because, because that's what we do, you know, when we're not, when we're not doing this, we're doing that. Um, but I feel no guilt. I feel zero guilt because I'm, uh, I'm true to all of of what what I am, but I am a one. I, there's there's only one Jill Bolte Taylor. Uh, there are four characters, character profiles inside, um, and they're constantly negotiating. And um, uh, you know, uh, my uh, my publicist sent me a, a list of of uh, questions that she found on a website, and she said, uh, Dr. Jill, would you uh, have time to do this uh, today? <laughs> You know, I get a lot of that today and, you know, I have my schedule and then I have my free time. That's part of my schedule. And, um, and so now she's coming in and saying in your free time, would you go back to being a left brain and do these things? And so there's this real negotiation inside of me 
between these different characters. And it's like, so I sent her a note. I said, let me take a quick paddleboard and I will get these back to you. And then I read through them and it's all story, right? And so I read through the questions and then I took my paddleboard and I just went, my, let my mind go blank and do me in the present. And then I went back and what could have taken, you know, two or three hours, I whipped out in 20 minutes because I allowed it to just kind of settle, be calm. I didn't have to worry about making up a story. There's a natural story to unfold if I allow myself the freedom of, of being open to whatever that is. And, um, and, and that's, you know, I, my mother was a mathematician and she was, um, uh, she, her favorite thing to do was to study her her uh, problems before she loved Calc one, two, and three, and she loved analytical geometry. And, and I mean, this was a woman who you'd go in and and uh, she's reading the Encyclopedia Britannica. I mean, she was an interesting mind that was interested, but she would do these these um, uh, these these problems and then and then right before bed and know that in the morning she would have an answer. And she trusted the process. And I think that that allowing ourselves to trust that we have these different parts of ourselves that bring the, the genius of what we are and the details and the facts of what we are and the emotion of what we feel and the experience of the beauty and wonder of our connectedness when we know these different pieces of ourselves, they naturally want to work together and find peace. I want to live a worthwhile life. I want to have purpose. I want to have meaning. I want to have a whole lot of fun. And I want to feel connected to everyone. I want to be best, best me that I can be. And I think that most of us want that, but we don't know how to get that. Mm -hmm. And, and a that is because that left brain has said it's got to look like this it's got to be like this we've got to do it this way this is what we value this is what we what is important but that story the societal story doesn't necessarily resonate with our right brain that wants to be connected and has a different value structure so, so I think that, that part of the problems with society and the, the level of drug addiction and alcohol abuse and, and suicidal rates and all of it, the level of dissatisfaction that we as humanity are is experiencing is because it's the story that the left brain societal norm is, is telling us. And my left brain saying, I need to turn that off, but I don't even know where it is or what it is. <laughs> I apologize. No problem. Well, listen, uh, I really appreciate your time today. So grateful and uh, great conversation. So wishing you all the best and thanking thank you so you. much for uh, your insight. Thank you. I appreciate it. This is a, a great, uh, a, uh, a great story uh, uh, for me to share with you. So thank you, David, for your time. And um, uh, I appreciate it. The Story Talks Back is produced and hosted by Dave Stanton. The music you're hearing now was written and performed by Christopher Daydream. The theme music at the beginning of our show 
is an excerpt from Play by Merlin Twelfthoven, performed by Carlos Quartet as part of their 50 for the Future series. Please subscribe to the Story Talks Back on Podbean and check us out on Instagram. See you next time.